This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. All right, well, today's podcast is going to be a little different. I've been commissioned to do a huge mural painting in my closest town, which is Front Royal, Virginia. It's about 15 minutes down the road, maybe maybe 20 you know, five of those minutes or more is just getting off of the mountain, down the gravel road, out of the hollow, and then to the main road. So I've been doing this huge mural for the town, and that has really consumed the past um, probably month or so of my life, and I'm only probably halfway through. And so I'm hold, hoping the weather holds off to finish up before winter sets in. So I mentioned that because... I just couldn't get the focus to get a guest for this episode. So I was trying to brainstorm, well, not only the focus, but the time, because I've been painting every single day unless it's raining. So what else could I do for an episode? And I was thinking, well, why don't I just read a bunch of stories that have been very moving to me? And um, I'm not going to review the stories, but maybe comment on some personal experiences that relate to the stories. Before we get into the stories, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who's been listening, that we are now 15 episodes deep, and I don't normally really research stuff that I'm doing, but I saw that most people quit their podcasts at 13 episodes, so we are two beyond that. So, hopefully let's keep on going. I got a lot of exciting ones planned in the future. We're going to talk to Susan, my landlady who runs United Plant Savers. We're going to talk to a brain tanner who makes their living from making buckskins. There's a renowned feminist author who I want to speak about um, because of her role as a master of foxhounds huntsman. She... Uh, takes part in equestrian fox hunts where the fox element, they very, very rarely is the fox killed. That it's more just about horsemanship, the work with the hounds, the the way that you dress for this, and the ritual of it. Because this is something that comes from, you know, old world Europe, England, I'm assuming. That'll be interesting if I can uh, get her on the show I think we're going to be talking to some folks in West Virginia who have have a nonprofit to protect, um, you know, protect the mountains from from strip mining, from coal mining, strip mining, mountaintop removal. I don't know very much about that topic, so I can't wait to hear all about that. Um, might be hearing from a squirrel dog breeder. That would be exciting. Just got a lot in store for 2021. So I really appreciate everyone listening. I've been getting some really great feedback from people that I really appreciate. And um, 
the server that I upload the podcast, Buzzsprout, has said that we are number 54 in the nature category. So I guess that's something for only being 15 episodes deep. So I really appreciate everybody listening. Now let's get into story time. And hopefully I'll, I'm going to give you all the information on the titles of these books and the authors that we're going to read excerpts from. So if you've got some, uh, you know, still have a few Christmas presents left to get, maybe some of these will uh, lend up as presents. So relax. Let's hear some stories. You'll hear that it's raining. It's Monday morning. Amongst the rain are big globs of snow that are falling with the rain. You might hear some crackling from the wood stove. The house smells of burning wood. I've got a a mushroom tea here and some coffee. Let's get into story time. So the first short story I want to read kind of this one kind of relates to our uh, Halloween special where we talked to Tyler Chadwell about Appalachian witch lore. So this is a book called Virginia Folk Legends and it's edited by Thomas E. Barden. So this book was, um, let's see here, there were a bunch of field workers from the Virginia Writers Project, WPA, in 1937 to 1942 and it looks as though they went around collecting folk stories from the people and so this book kind of hits a lot of themes that i think are really fascinating um with books of folk tales there's there's categories there are animals there's indian stories ghost stories haunted houses conjure and witchcraft legendary people uh, both African-American and Anglo, Anglo-American. Anglo uh, Murder and violence, place names, supernatural events, unusual events, treasure. It's just really fun stuff. Now, one category I find exceptionally interesting is spirit dogs. What's that all about? Before I read this story about spirit dogs, I've had my own experience uh, unbeknownst to me that spirit dogs are a thing here in Virginia or Appalachia or wherever. But so if you've listened to the very first podcast, I give you a little background about where we live. We live in a hollow in Virginia and I rent a cabin and we are very much tucked in the woods, even though there's a highway not so far away. And I can walk from the front door of our cabin. I can walk through the woods on a pretty tangled up trail and connect to the Appalachian Trail. And when I lived here alone before my girlfriend moved in, I would do this every single day for exercise. And when you get up to the Appalachian Trail, there's like a big meadow before you go back into the woods and then you kind of crisscross and sometimes you can see some houses and cross a road. But one day, middle of the day, I went up to the Appalachian Trail into that big field, into that prairie. And by the way, I've done some foraging up there. 
elderberry. Um, I think there's some mulberries up there. Um, definitely uh, the field is completely filled with um, milkweed. So I've grabbed a few milkweed buds. And on this one particular day, I'm up in the field and no one's up there. I stop to pee. And as I begin to pee, I just have a feeling that there's a dog coming in behind me. And I hear... And I'm like, oh, well, obviously someone is walking on the trail and their dog has been running in front of them. And I just kind of turn and look around and there's nothing anywhere. No person, no dog. And the volume of that panting was as if it were within a few feet of me. So I didn't even I didn't even feel spooked by this. I I just thought, oh, well, that was strange. So here's a Christmas-related spirit dog story. This one is called "The Dog That Turned to Rags." Silas Craft, interviewed by James Taylor Adams in Big Laurel, Wise County, Virginia, on June sixteenth, nineteen forty-one. Now I have to, I might have to read this a little bit with a funky uh, kind of southern accent because it, it, it's written that way, so it's kind of hard to read sometimes. One time, it's been fifty years or more ago. I was working for a feller on Cumberland named Lewis, a wealthy feller, had lots of money, logging man. Me and Melvin Brown, brother Johnny was sparking Melvin's sister, and him and John Press Bolin was making liquor for Thurston Banner. He wrote me or sent me word that he was coming over Christmas and bringing some brandy and we'd have a good time. I sent back word for him to come on. So him and John Press got him a keg of brandy two or three days before Christmas and started out working up pound. They both told me this, said they was coming along right there about the Jane Short mulberry tree when all at once something that looked like a big dog raised up right in front of them. They stopped and looked at it, and it would turn its head and look at them. Had little teeny eyes, but they looked like blazes of fire. Seemed like its neck was stiff, and it had to turn its whole body. One of them said to the other, Here, hold this keg. I'm going to see what it is. The hair on it hung plumb down to the ground, they said, and looked right shaggy. They thought maybe it was a donkey. They scolded it, but it just stood there and looked at them. It was way in the night, and they was making for Uncle John Bolin's to stay all night. John Press, I believe it was, picked up a rock he'd kicked loose from the frozen ground and cut loose at it, but it didn't move. He ventured up and struck out his hand to feel of it and couldn't feel a thing, and at the same time they could see it, and it turned and looked at him in the face. He grabbed up another rock and let go, and the rock didn't seem to hit anything. But they said that then, whatever it was, just seemed to tear all to pieces and turned into a great big bundle of rags and strings and started winding right round and round and going right up. When it was up in the air, a little piece all seemed to gather back together again and turned into something that looked like an eagle 
but big as a cow, and went sailing off over the timber. Spirit dogs. Who knew? And while we're on the topic of things in the night, mysterious things in the night, this one's really fun. And this one is literally from where I live. This was told by Catherine Newman, interviewed by Laura Virginia Hale in Front Royal, Warren County, on June 29, 1942. I used to know a lot of that stuff you axin' about, but I reckon I done forgot most of it, or just can't recollect it offhand. I remember how the old folks used to tell about jack lanterns that'd lead you off at night. You know, back in those days, there wasn't lights everywhere to guide a body like tis today. If you started out to go somewhere at night, you'd try to spot a light in some neighbor's house and follow that. On real dark, foggy nights, one of them jack-o'-lanterns would appear in front of someone traveling along a lonely road or path, a-looking just like a light way off in somebody's winder, so as to make that person foller it. Then it'd lead him off into the thickets or swamps somewhere. Why, I've heard of folks being lost all night following one of them jack-o'-lanterns, so if a body had to go somewhere at night and didn't want to be led off by a jack-o'-lantern, He'd turn his pockets wrong side out. That'd keep him away, they said. Jack Melanterns. And if you listen to Lynn Faust, one of the most uh, just enchanting, and uh, she's a real raconteur. If you listen to that episode, she's the lightning bug lady. She talks a lot about bioluminescence and some kind of um, her own experiences walking up on bioluminescent mushrooms and how ghostly it can be out in the woods okay so that's our first reading so i for this episode i kind of rummaged through my library when i lived up in new york my library was probably my favorite um possession or, or worldly thing in my, it was in my bedroom, and I just, you know, I would go to the famous bookstore Strand multiple times a week, like maybe three times a week, just collecting as many books as possible. That's probably one of my favorite experiences of New York City. And actually, the Strand store recently, because of uh, COVID, was getting into a bit of a, um, well, there was the chance that they would shut down this incredible historical bookstore that's absolutely enormous. And it looks as though they had an enormous amount of online sales to help them out, and hopefully they've recovered. So, well, yeah, there you go. So maybe if you want to help that store out, if you've ever been to the famous Strand store and you like any of our readings today, you could try ordering them from Strand. So this next one, so I was going through my library, and I've got a lot of books on mythology and and now growing folk tales, a growing library of folk tales, and all sorts of stuff like that. The occult. And and I just grabbed this book of Norse myths. So this next story relates to something that I've been thinking a lot about. So if you've listened to this podcast, I started trapping last season. 
I got some a bunch of beavers that we ate and we made into these well we had sent to a tannery to make these absolutely unbelievable furs. I'm actually wearing right now I'm wearing the raccoon fur that um the raccoon story was pretty intense and pretty disturbing and um really a very meaningful and um I had to really it was a morally complex intense life trans, ritualistic an intense life experience that you can hear about in the first episode of the podcast. So I'm wearing the raccoon right now. And something I've been thinking about is otters because the otter pelts are very much, are, are basically like a piece of neoprene. They're just incredibly waterproof and they're known in the, in the fur world for being of incredible value. And I don't just mean dollar value. I mean that they're just, the quality is unbelievable. They're, and supposedly they're, if they're almost too, if you make like a otter hat, it's too hot to wear unless you like really are living high up north. So I caught an otter by accident in my beaver traps um, last winter, which is totally legal. We have a healthy otter population if you listen to the episode with the fur bear biologist, he actually talks about how trappers have helped in the eastern part of Virginia to um, reintroduce otters west of the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia. So I caught an otter last year, and I just didn't know that you could eat it. It's one of the weasels. So I did not eat it. But I had it taxidermied, kind of just, well, one is one of the most amazing animals that we got here in our woods. And as just a reminder of kind of one's actions in the woods, just one, like just the ethical quandaries of all this hunting and all this kind of stuff. But something I've been thinking about is the edibility, if that's a word, the edibleness, edibility, I don't know. It, can you eat an otter? And I've put this question out all over the place. I've got, I've, I've found maybe three people who have told me they've eaten an otter. Two of which basically said, it's pretty weird. I've seen one video on YouTube and the guy, and the guy just kind of, it's like kind of like a, uh, it just seems like something weird to do once just to say you've eaten an otter. But I was trying to find someone that says that otter's great. And I think their account is called Lure of the North on Instagram. They're a, like a family of adventure guides in Northern Ontario. I think it was them, but I asked them on Instagram because I heard it's something about otter. I think it's them. And they basically said they eat otters you know, often, and it tastes absolutely great, like if you slow cook it and whatnot. So other than that, I haven't been finding any answers on what's eating otter like. And then I found this Norse myth about eating otter. And I was like, holy moly, well, this is awesome. So here, my answer to eating otters is in mythology. So before getting into this otter story, I thought I should um, review a few things about Norse myth that I didn't know or wanted to remind myself just to make this story more um, understandable. So 
some of the characters in this story. There's Odin, who is basically a Zeus-like figure. He's the king of the gods. He's the god of wisdom, poetry, death, divination, and magic. There's Loki, and Loki is very much a trickster god. There's Honir. I had never heard of Honir. And doing a little searching online, Honir seems to be an incredibly handsome god who's kind of quite pathetic. He doesn't have much other powers other than his handsomeness. And he's the god of indecision and avoidance. And in, in, in one resource I saw, a god of mystery. Other terms I thought were important, in case you don't remember them from school, there's Midgard, which is the land of the mortals, and there's Asgard, land of the gods. So this is from the Norse myths, introduced and retold by Kevin Crossley Holland. The title of this is Otter's Ransom. Winter had lost its heart. Every day the stallions Arvac and Alsvid rose earlier to haul the sun's chariot across the sky, and quietly the snow pulled back from the valleys and plains of Midgard. Small choirs of birds sang, and Odin, Loki, and Honir were eager to leave Asgard and resume their exploration of the worlds. Early one morning the three gods crossed Bifrost. Talking and laughing, they spring-heeled into Midgard, and Odin and Loki had to stretch their legs to keep up with swift Honir. Suddenly, a late snowstorm assaulted the travelers. They shrugged their way through thick, wet flakes that tangled and danced and spun and flew in every direction till that wild onslaught ended as abruptly as it began. The sun boomed through layers of shapeless cloud, filling it with fierce yellow light. And then there was only the orb of the sun, the expanding acres of pale blue sky, and the blue and green levels of open Midgard. The three gods followed the course of a river towards its head, and in the afternoon they walked up under a waterfall. They strode into the thunder through the spray diamonds and stared into the maelstrom. Then Odin spotted an otter stretched out on the scraggy bank not fifty paces from them. He pointed it out to Loki and Honir. The otter's eyes were shut. Feeling blessed and rather drowsy in the afternoon sun, it had just begun to eat a salmon it had caught in the waterfall. Loki pursed his lips. He bent down and picked up a fist-sized stone, took aim, and threw it as hard as he could at the otter. The stone hit the animal on the head and killed it outright. Well then, shouted Loki, struggling back to Odin and Honir with the salmon under one arm and the limp otter under another. What do you say to that? Two for the price of one. The three companions were all equally delighted. Loki at his prowess and Odin and Honir at the prospect of a good meal that evening. They climbed up the steep bank beside the waterfall and continued on their way up the narrowing river valley. The sun had already been drawn out of sight, and it was halfway to dark when the gods saw a farm only a little way ahead of them. Smoke lifted from its chimney. They quickened their step and gave thanks for their good fortune. Can you give us lodgings for the night? Odin asked the farmer, Friedmar. We've no wish for a due bed. How many are you? said Friedmar. 
There are two others outside, Odin replied, and we can pay for our beds with food. We were in luck today, and there's enough for everyone. For my sons as well, said Hridmar. For Fafnir and Regin, and for my daughters, Lingid and Lofnid. Enough for everyone, said Odin airily. Then Hridmar nodded without much enthusiasm, and Odin went to the door and called to Loki and Honir. Here we are, said Honir. And here's our supper, said Loki cheerfully. I bagged them both with one stone. When Hridmar saw the otter draped under his nose, he stiffened. For a moment his eyes glazed, and then he turned and walked out of the room. What's wrong with him, said Loki. Odin shrugged. A cool welcome is better than a cold night, he said. I'm not so sure, said Honir. No, Odin replied, you never are. Hridmar walked down the low passage, punching the turf walls, and found Fafnir and Regin. What do you think, he said. Your brother Otter is dead. Dead, exclaimed the brothers, leaping up. Dead. And what else do you think? His murderers are our guests for the night. Fafnir and Regin were outraged and swore to avenge Otter's death. There are three of them and three of us, said Hridmar. So we'll have to surprise them. Each of us must take one when I give the nod. One has a rather fine spear and might be better off without it. And one has strange shoes and could be better off barefoot. I see nothing harmful about the third. I'll use my magic. I'll chant spells to weaken them. I'll sing a charm to bind them. Fafnir and Regin did just as their father said. The three of them leaped up on their visitors, and the farmer magician Hredmar weakened their resistance so that Odin lost his spear, Gungnir, and Loki was relieved of his sky shoes. When the three gods lay on the ground, bound hand and foot, Hridmar shouted, My son, you've killed my son. I'll kill you all for vengeance. You've killed my son. What does he mean? asked Odin. Otter was our brother, Fafnir said. The finest of fishermen, said Regin. He had the likeness of an otter by day, Fafnir said. All day he lived in the river and beside the river, and brought his prey to our father, a supply of fresh fish our brother. We didn't know this, Odin said again. Do you think we'd have come straight to his father's farm? You must at least give us a chance to pay a ransom before killing us. Friedmar looked down at his three visitors and said nothing. I speak for the three of us, Odin said. We'll pay as much as you demand. Friedmar thought for a while. That would be fair, he said. If you were to keep to your word, you must swear an oath, and if you break it, you will all pay with your heads. Then the three companions swore that they would raise as much as Friedmar asked. All right, said the magician, turning to Fafnir and Regin. Where are Lingheed and Lofnid? Have them flay otter and bring me his skin again. Fafnir and Regin obeyed their father, and then Friedmar laid out otter's handsome skin beside the fire. First you must fill this with red gold, he told the gods, and then you must cover it with red gold into the bargain. It must be wholly covered. That is the ransom for the death of my son. So be it, said Odin, and he rolled over until he was close enough to Loki to whisper in his ear. Loki listened carefully, and then he said, Let me go for the gold. Let me go, and hold the other twos as hostages. So Hridmar untied Loki's bonds, and with a snatch of a look, 
and a jeering laugh that left Friedmar and his sons and even Honir uneasy, Loki threw open the door and ran out into the night. Loki had left his sky shoes in the care of the magician, and in any event, he was in no great hurry. He knew Freydmer had nothing to gain by killing Odin and Honir, and everything to win by waiting for his return with the red gold. And he was not especially averse to the thought of mighty Odin and long-legged Honir lying for a while, bound hand and foot. He dwaddled all the way across Midgard to the island of Hielzi. There, Loki visited Aegir and Ran in their hall on the seabed. The gods are in danger, he told Ran breathlessly. Odin himself lies bound, Odin and Honir, and only your net can save them. The wife of the sea god opened her cold, pale eyes very wide. Lend me your drowning net, I can use it, and not to snare men, but to save gods. When Loki had talked Ran into parting with her net, he left the hall beneath the waves quickly in case she changed her mind and headed for the world of the Dark Elves. Loki picked his way down a chain of dripping tunnels and through a maze of twilight chambers until he came to a massive cavern. Its roof was supported by columns of rock thicker than tree trunks, and its corners were still and dark. A little light, however, filtered into the middle of the cavern from a vertical shaft in the roof and showed Loki what he had come to see, a large, silent pool filled with water that seemed to spring from nowhere and flow nowhere. Loki spread out Ran's finely meshed net and cast it into the pool. He dragged it and pulled it up, and there, furiously lashing and writhing, was a large pike snared in the net. Avoiding its nasty teeth and the equally nasty look in its yellow eyes, Loki took hold of it. First, he said, as he gave the pike a horrible shaking, you'll change shape. Change shape, echoed the cavern. Then there was no pike but the dwarf and Vari in Rand's dripping net. Loki disentangled him, keeping a firm hold all the while on the back of his neck. What do you want? whined Andvari. You want, said the cave. What I want is all your gold, otherwise I'll wring you out like a piece of washing. All your gold. All your gold, boomed the cavern. And Vari shuddered. He led Loki out of that echoing chamber and down a twisting passage into his smithy. It was hot and smoky, but well fitted and well stocked with gold that gleamed in the firelight. The dwarf spread out his hands and shrugged. Gather it up, said Loki, kicking a gold nugget. And Vari scrambled around, cursing and moaning. He made a pile of discs and chips and splinters and small bars of red gold, of objects already made and objects half-made. Loki looked at the stack and was well satisfied. Is that all? he said. And Vari said nothing. He stowed the gold into two old sacks. It filled them both. Then, grunting, he dragged them across the smithy and stood them in front of Loki. What about that ring? said Loki, pointing at the dwarf's closed right hand. I saw you hit it. Andvari shook his head. Put it in the sack, said Loki. Let me keep it, begged Andvari, just this ring. Put it in the sack, said Loki. Let me keep this, just this, pleaded the dwarf. Then at least I'll be able to make more gold again. I have no need of more, said Loki, and I'm going to strip you to the bone. He stepped forward and knocked aside one sack, 
forced open Andavari's fist and seized the little twisted ring. It was marvelously wrought, and Loki slipped it on to his own little finger. What is not freely given must be taken by force, he said. Nothing was freely given, Andvari replied. Loki shouldered the sacks and turned towards the door of the smithy. Take that ring, yelled the dwarf. My curse on that ring and that gold. It will destroy whoever owns it. Loki turned round and faced Envari. So much the better, he said. No one will win joy with my wealth, shouted Envari. If, said Loki, if I repeat your words to those about to get this gold, then, Envari, your curse will come to pass. And with that, Loki turned round again, and with oaths and spells in his ear, made his way out of the world of the dark elves and into Midgard. You took your time, said Odin. Honir said nothing. He looked rather fearful. Hard won and well won, said Loki. He dumped the sacks of red gold in front of his companions. And what do you say to this, he whispered, showing Odin the twisted finger ring which he had wrenched from Envari. Odin blinked and marveled at its subtle beauty. Give it to me, he said. At last, said Hridmar, as he walked into the room, followed by his two sons and two daughters. He nodded, and Fafnir and Regan cut Odin and Honir free from their bounds. Slowly and stiffly the two gods stood up. They flexed their muscles and rubbed their hands. They looked at their chafed wrists and ankles. Well then, said Hridmar. You must stuff the skins yourself, said Loki, or you'll never be satisfied. He emptied one sack onto the ground, and the magician stowed piece after piece inside Otter's skin. He filled it so that it was plump and taut bursting from top to tail. Now we'll cover it completely, Loki said, opening the second sack and pouring another mound of metal over the marl floor. While Honir held Otter's skin upright, snout down, Odin and Loki heaped the gold around it. They built Otter a barrow of gold. So, said Odin, with the satisfaction of a jaw well done, come and look for yourself, Hridmar. You've covered the skin completely. The magician walked round and round the stack. He walked round it again. He examined the gold inch by inch. Here, he said, here's a whisker. This must be covered and hidden. Otherwise, I'll hold that you've broken your oath, and that will be the end of our understanding. Loki looked at Odin, and Odin looked at the twisted ring in his little finger. He sniffed and drew it off and placed it over the single whisker showing. Now, said Odin loudly, we've paid Otter's ransom in full. You have indeed, said Hridmar. Still rather unsteady on his feet, Odin lurched across the room to where his spear, Gungnir, was propped up in the corner, and Loki fell on his sky shoes and at once put them on. A sense of their own strength surged within them. They looked at Hridmar and Fafnir and Regan with no great liking. Listen carefully, said Loki. That ring and all that gold was made by the dwarf Envari. I only wrested it from him with his curse, Loki paused. And what he said, I say. What he said will hold. Loki's voice was low and compelling. Take that ring. My curse on that ring and that gold. It will destroy whoever owns it. Odin looked at Loki. His eyes glittered and Loki smiled crookedly. Then Honir took one step 
and was at their side, the three companions stepped out of the farmhouse into the welcoming spring air. Wow. So, the gods are pretty cruel. It's a lot to think about there symbolically. I think it's interesting that Loki the trickster tried to give that ring to Odin. Well, I found that interesting because it answers my question about eating otter. Otter was obviously a feast back whenever this was this story was being told, a thousand years ago, I don't know. That an otter pelt was of high value then, and the otter's flesh was a great feast, is just as good as salmon feast. So that is really inspiring to me and answers the question I've been seeking. I guess I'll have to make sure if I come across an otter that I do not mistake it for the son of a magician because uh, I don't want to get entangled with that business. What's coming to mind, kind of thinking on that story too, is to not seek revenge against God, I guess. That you have the death of a loved one, but then the angry father tries to, to seek revenge by killing the gods. You cannot seek revenge on the gods because it'll make things worse. And if you, if you read the notes after that story, it talks, about how, it talks about how that gold ended up cursing everyone in the family. Okay, I'm going to pause. I'm going to stoke the fire, finish this tea, and we'll move on to the next story. All right, we are back. The snow is falling heavily. The fire has been stoked. Might be hearing it crackle in the background. And we were talking about otters. And that brings up my thoughts on my fur trapping from last winter. Well, food fur trapping. And, well, I posted about this raccoon from last year and with it pictures from beaver trapping, which I did for a farmer who had a big flood issue. The, um, the water was almost coming up to a main road. I talk about it in that first, um, my first podcast episode where I also share the raccoon story. And when I posted it, I lost, while I did have a lot of people, I mean, more likes than usual. And I know this is kind of juvenile thing to get hung up on, but I did immediately lose 200 followers. And I thought that was really interesting that, uh, and I was wondering, did I um, misrepresent myself or did I? And because I was showing and declaring joy and because those experiences were so heavy, and I talk about it in that original podcast, they were so heavy last winter that over time now they've transformed into um, experiences of fondness. I mean, I really appreciated that beaver meat and getting back our furs from the tannery. I mean, they're, they are the stuff of 
I mean, truly of, of royalty. The beaver furs are, are so luxurious and soft and wonderful. And, you know, we've worn them around the house. I'm wearing my beaver right now, or sorry, I'm wearing my, my raccoon right now. And I've been wearing it out when I go out in the woods, when I'm working on the wood pile. And it is so warm. And when I got the raccoon pelt, I was immediately filled with joy and any old feelings of kind of shame for how that experience went because the putting down of that raccoon was quite traumatic. And um, because of my own insufficiency, and uh, it became a bad situation, which again, I tell that story in the first podcast. But to now have the pelt, I felt any guilt, any lingering guilt, just completely lift. And I was finally ready to eat the raccoon meat. So we cooked up the raccoon. I um, parboiled it for three hours. Then I made a homemade barbecue sauce, smeared, shredded the meat, covered it in barbecue sauce, put um, onions and garlic and baked it in the oven. And the barbecue raccoon idea kind of came came from uh, a article in Fur Fish and Game called Food Bearers, where they're talking about eating muskrat, eating beaver, and eating raccoon. And I was like, okay, well, we're going to try it now. And while eating it, I was surprised that I was filled with joy and like ecstasy and elation. Like I was laughing and smiling and it, it wasn't It was like a big transformation of the original experience, the killing of this raccoon, which was so intense and traumatic and upsetting that now this a year later, almost a year, this experience was transformed into something of ecstasy. And it made me so happy to like feed it to my girlfriend. And I had friends come from New York. They were on an Appalachian uh, road trip. And they stopped by and I served them some and they're big New York foodies. Um, When I lived in New York City and this was my film partner, we would go out eating probably every single day. So we really developed a palate for flavor up in New York. And I really appreciated those experiences. So I served, and he is like a, uh, he is a quite the master chef. I mean, he cooks fine dining level food at home. He'll spend days on a dish. And so I served it to to him and, he, you know, you could see his face was kind of squinched up like, hmm, this is weird. And as he's chewing, he has this, this, his face illuminates with like surprise. And he says like, wow, he's like, this is delicious. And his girlfriend, or sorry, his fiance even tried it. And she's can be quite a picky eater. She doesn't even eat pork. She's never tried deer. She's never tried, um, any of the wild game that I would bring up to New York to serve them. And she tried some of the coon. She was like, wow, that is delicious. So, and I was laughing hysterically and I was just like, this is, I was just like filled with a truly elation. So back to some of my thoughts with sharing about the hunting and trapping, um, you know, I can be very cautious about it because, you know, I, I don't want it to come across in the wrong way or to, to be grotesque. And while I would rather be myself than like for something I'm not, I have always been 
kind of scared about judgment on these things. And I feel as though the judgment is really um, being nervous about being judged by the feminine and by women in general, that they will perceive me as some ruthless killer that is exploiting um, the natural wonders of our world, which is not really how I see what I'm doing. I see it as forming a relationship with the plants and animals and the landscape. And sometimes when I um, become trepidatious about this, I recall this story I'm going to read about the bone collector. And, you know, looking on Instagram now, I follow a lot of women, mainly young women, who seem to be very um, filled with the archetype of this bone collector. You know, a lot of women taxidermists, a lot of uh, women who are interested in tanning hides and making things out of um, natural fats, such as coon fat and uh, beaver fat, primitive skills. And I can even see this um, in my girlfriend, because sometimes, um, you know, she wasn't into the hunting stuff when I first started. But now she's, you know, very much in line with it as we've been eating these kind of foods for past few years now. But sometimes when I bring home a critter, you know, she will express sadness, which sometimes I feel and sometimes I don't feel, you know, and then that switches almost um, instantaneously. And Vivian um, becomes inspired by this this archetype the bone collector archetype and you know she has preserved feathers for us and she has uh dried out a turkey tail from a roadkill turkey and she dried it out with salt in a fan shape and i actually used that fan for hunting turkey the next season and got us a turkey with that fan that she dried out and she salted the the turkey feet and so we have these there's these very witchy feet that are kind of sprawled out standing. And when I brought home the original raccoon and possum, while I was disturbed by that experience, very quickly she skinned their heads and cleaned the heads and we started boiling them over our wood fire and we preserved their, or well, she preserved their skulls as I was taking care of um, the other chores of uh, butchering. And so, you know, when I see these Instagram accounts with women cleaning bones and um, making jewelry out of them, I think of this story I read in... Clarissa Pincola Estes, Women Who Ran With the Wolves. And this is a book for women. It's called Women Who Run With the Wolves, Myths, Stories, Myths and Stories of the Wild Woman Archetype. And um, this is, she, uh, Pincola Estes is a Jungian, and she wrote this book of the feminine stories, the feminine myths. And 
for me as a man, it was very illuminating to read this, to see what's going on in the female psyche. And if you're unfamiliar with Pinkola Estes, I highly encourage you to check out a podcast called Insights at the Edge with Tammy Simon. And Clarissa has an episode called Clarissa Pinkola Estes, Untie the Strong Woman. And it is uh, it is almost chilling because it feels like a person is really channeling the great mother. And it seems she really comes across like an oracle, like speaking on behalf of the gods. Just such an, an, an incredible sage and a uh, someone really embodying, well, mm, channeling, I don't know about embodying, but really channeling the just unbelievable wisdom. There is an old woman who lives in a hidden place that everyone knows in their souls, but few have ever seen. As in the fairy tales of Eastern Europe, she seems to wait for lost or wandering people and seekers to come to her place. She is circumspect, often hairy, always fat, and especially wishes to evade most company. She is both a crower and a cackler, generally having more animal sounds than human ones. I might say she lives among the rotten granite slopes in Tarahamara Indian Territory, or that she is buried outside Phoenix near a well. Perhaps she will be seen traveling south to Monte Alban in a burnt-out car with the back window shot out, or maybe she will be spotted standing by the highway near El Paso or riding shotgun with truckers to, to Morelia, Mexico, or walking to market above Oaxaca with strangely formed boughs of firewood on her back. She calls herself by many names, La Huacera, Bone Woman, La Trapera, The Gatherer, and La Loba, Wolf Woman. The sole work of La Loba is the collecting of bones. She collects and preserves especially that which is in danger of being lost to the world. Her cave is filled with the bones of all manner of desert creatures, the deer, the rattlesnake, the crow. But her specialty is wolves. She creeps and crawls and sifts through the montanas, mountains, and arroyos, dry riverbeds, looking for wolf bones. And when she has assembled an entire skeleton, when the last bone is in place and the beautiful white sculpture of the creature is laid out before her, she sits by the fire and thinks about what song she will sing. And when she is sure, she stands over the creatura, raises her arms over it, and sings out. That is when the rib bones and leg bones of the wolf begin to flesh out and the creature becomes furred. La Loba sings some more, and more of the creature comes into being. Its tail curls upward, shaggy and strong. And La Loba sings more, and the wolf creature begins to breathe. And still, La Loba sings so deeply that the floor of the desert shakes, and as she sings, the wolf opens its eyes, leaps up, and runs away down the canyon. Somewhere in its running, whether by the speed of its running, or by the splashing its way into a river, or by way of a ray of sunlight or moonlight hitting it right in the side, the wolf is suddenly transformed into a laughing woman 
who runs free towards the horizon. So remember, if you wander the desert and it is near sundown, and you are perhaps a little bit lost and certainly tired, that you are lucky, for La Loba may take a liking to you and show you something, something of the soul. There have been a handful of excerpts from Women Who Run With The Wolves that have really stuck with me as very potent wisdom. So I highly encourage checking that book out if you haven't already. Now, I was planning to read from a whole bunch of books, but we're coming, we're already like an hour deep here. So I'm going to wrap it up with a final story. And I was actually wondering, am I allowed to just read people's books on a podcast? And it appears as though you're not reading the entire book. And um, as long as it's excerpts and a few critique or review it, that's fine. And uh, I'm also not making a single dollar on this podcast. I'm spending money on this by uh, hosting it on a server and buying sound effects and all sorts of stuff like that. So hopefully this is all okay. And I hope that I'm actually just giving free promotion for all these uh, amazing authors, these amazing people. So I want to conclude with a story by Doug Elliott in his book, Wild Woods Wisdom Encounters with the Natural World. So I came across Doug Elliott from my landlady, Susan of United Plant Savers. She runs this nonprofit. Their focus is on the conservation of medicinal plants, mainly in Appalachia, stuff like ginseng, golden seal, trillium, plenty of others, and out west, OSHA. So their focus is plant education and plant conservation around herbalism, basically. A lot of plants that are overforged and overused. But they've had many events. And I've been hired to film little promotional videos for them and such. And Doug Elliott has been a guest at many of these events. And he is just a legendary guy. Just so charming. And just enormous, enormously big-hearted, filled with wonder man. And he is a naturalist and a folklorist, a musician, a raconteur, an herbalist. And when we started reading Wildwood's Wisdom, Vivian and I would read it a little bit before bed, and usually an entire chapter. And we just couldn't believe it. We couldn't believe how incredibly charming and wonderful and whimsical this book is. And we really said, I think this is one of the best books ever written that on, on nature writing. And so this book is a handful of Doug's experiences. And what we really liked about this book is that he will both weave his own personal experiences with mythology about animals and plants and with um, folklore of plants and animals. So this book, he talks about here are some of the chapter names. Confessions of a Snake Boy, O Groundhog, Beaver Psychology, The Night of the Living Skunk, The Buzzard Lope, The Root Doctor, Two Ways to Choke an Owl, So Goes the Life of a Bat, 
Appalachian alchemy, stocking the old-time apples, poplar appeal. I wouldn't take nothing for my woodpeckers, the ginseng hunt, jack in the pulpit, raccoon discipline and possum lessons, advanced possumology, matching the hatch, mud turkle medicine, the serpent and the egg. So, I mean, if that doesn't pull you in, I don't know what does, because, I mean, that just sounds so wonderful. So we're going to be reading an excerpt from Mud Turkle Medicine, Meditations on the Heart of a Turtle. Before we do, I can relate this to my own experiences that this past summer, I caught my first snapping turtle. There's a pond back in the woods, bushwhacked back there about a mile with a machete because it's so tangled up and thick with briars and just um, spice bush and just heavy vegetation back there. Bushwhacked this pond, baited a hook with possum meat from last winter's um, trapping. I didn't necessarily want to eat the possum. Maybe I'll try it down the line. I know a lot of old timers in Appalachia have eaten possum, so I'm going to have to try that at some point. But I, this one, I used this possum for bait. And after three mornings, I caught the snapping turtle. And I, and I pulled it up, and it was huge, um, at least from my perspective. I think the world record, or sorry, the Virginia record is an 18-inch shell, and this was 15 and a half. So this was an old turtle. And as I pulled it out of the water, I... Uh, I had the sensation to look up at the pond and I saw different groups of bubbles forming on the surface. And I had this feeling that I was being watched. Watched by the spirits of the pond, watched by other turtles. And when I got home, I kind of reflected on this with some research about snapping turtles. For one, it looks as though the males, which this ended up being as we opened it up and butchered it, we saw that it had two big testicles inside of that shell. And um, it looks as though snapping turtles can be very territorial. And so I wondered if I had removed like a king turtle from this woods, this woods, this undisturbed woods pond And if I was opening space for these younger males to now come in, in to rain this pond, I felt like I was being watched, but not judged. I felt like watched and uh, something was opening up, some new space. And if you listen to the last podcast with Donna, she describes her relationship to the natural world, which is filled with spirits and gnomes and fairies and elementals, which is a little hard for me to uh, understand, to fully see through her eyes. But perhaps that's also something that was happening there. I was being watched by the wood spirits. And we butchered the turtle. And it's quite odd. Well, if I'm honest here, it was very tough to do. And um, it's similar to what you hear in Doug Elliott's story. And uh, I mean, both Vivian and I cried and had to shake it off after killing the turtle. 
And after shaking it off, it then became an incredibly fascinating experience because reptiles, even when they're dead, they're like a zombie. They still move for hours and hours and hours. Like if you behead a snake, which you're not supposed to do, but old timers would, the if it's a um, venomous snake, it can still bite you, even though it's a headless, it's a decapitated head. So as we are butchering the turtle, it's moving around. And um, even when it was just a shell with no head, no legs, and just an empty shell, the spine was still moving, teetering back and forth. Very creepy. And this ended up becoming our food for about two weeks, our meat for about two weeks. And I was astonished at how absolutely delicious it was. The first thing I made was a Hank Shaw Creel Turtle Soup recipe with parsley, sherry, Worcestershire sauce, paprika, cayenne, tomatoes, onions, garlic, celery, lemon zest, and lemon juice. Um, had to make a roux. And it was literally one of the best things I've ever eaten. I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, on par with some of the best things I've eaten in New York City at some incredible restaurants. And every meat seems to have an energy that you can really feel in your body. I mean, the deer and squirrel meat seems to give you this like potency, this energy of kind of the wild. But this turtle had something else going on. And it kind of had like a, a buoyancy or a effervescence to it. And I don't mean in feeling, I mean like in in spirit or something. Like after consuming it, there was like a, while perhaps the deer meat and the squirrel meat puts you in your body as an animal, the turtle meat seemed to kind of lift you up. It kind of had like a, a numinous spiritualness to it, um, a kind of floatiness to it. And, you know, I looked at Vivian and I said, hey, do you remember that story by Doug Elliott? And we both kind of like, you know, laugh because the story is so wonderful. And so... Here we go. We're going to read that story from Mud Turkle Medicine. I wonder if you'd let me put a hook in your pond. I'm wanting to catch me a mud turkle. This is the Appalachian name for the common snapping turtle. Roy was saying as he looked at the mashed-down grass and mud that marked the trail made by a large snapping turtle when it crossed the narrow spit of land between our two ponds. Roy was our country neighbor. He came from a long line of turkle hunters. He said he was about raised on turkle soup. He and his wife, Edith, had been very friendly and welcoming to us when we moved into the neighborhood a few years previously. Roy had a heart condition. He had undergone heart surgery and had spent several months in the hospital in the last few years. Now he was having serious back trouble and was facing another hospitalization and more surgery. As weak as he was feeling, he dreaded the thought of another major surgical ordeal. He had been taking a dozen different kinds of expensive prescription pills, but they only made him feel weaker. He needed something to give him strength. He needed turkle meat. He was going into the hospital the next week, so he needed it soon. He twisted large hooks onto wire leaders, 
baited them with fresh chicken liver and staked them to the bank of the pond. Every day he came and checked the hooks, but the hooks never produced. He often found fresh tracks between the ponds. Roy knew there was a large turtle in the area. He was frustrated, disheartened, and disappointed at his failure to catch it. The day he was due at the hospital came too soon, and Roy had not gotten his turtle. He and Edith had to drive five hours to the large hospital in Durham and stay overnight in a motel, so they would be there for his next appointment the next morning. When the head surgeon saw Roy's weakened condition and examined his medical records, he realized the risks involved. He told them flatly that surgery would kill Roy. Although they were both somewhat relieved that he didn't have to undergo more surgery, they were profoundly depressed about his poor health. As soon as they got home, Roy went straight to bed. When Yana called that afternoon to check on him, Edith said Roy was feeling pretty low. He was in the bed. He didn't feel like talking to anybody. Later that afternoon, Yana heard our dog barking frantically out at the pond. She ran out to see what the dog had found. She was astonished to see a huge snapping turtle. As she approached, the turtle raised up on its thick, scaly front legs and faced her. Its powerful jaws gaped. Its sharp, menacing, eagle-like beak framed a soft pink gullet. The dog leapt and danced in front of the turtle, making false attacks and barking frantically while the turtle lunged savagely at the dog. This was Roy's turtle. She wanted desperately to catch it for him, but she had never seen such a large turtle before. She had seen me capture snapping turtles by grabbing the tail, but I was away that week. She didn't know if she could handle this monster by herself. While the dog held the turtle at bay, she found a 55-gallon barrel and managed to invert it over the turtle. She then piled heavy rocks on top to hold it down and drove the iron stakes into the ground to keep it in place. Then she ran to the phone and called. Edith answered, and as soon as she heard how out of breath Yana was, Edith interrupted. What's the matter, honey? Are you snake bit? No, I got Roy's turtle. What do I do now? Oh, I don't know. He's still in bed. I'll go tell him. In a few minutes, Edith came back to the phone. He says he's coming right over. He's a putting on his shoes right now, she said in astonishment. A few minutes later, Roy arrived. He had a pair of channel lock pliers in his back pocket, a cigarette dangling out of the corner of his mouth, and he was carrying a small butcher knife in his hand. They went over to the turtle, and Roy lifted off the barrel and said, That's the turkle I was telling you about. I knew he was a big un. He casually reached down, picked up the tail, and carried it out into an open area in the yard. I reckon he'll run 18 or 20 pounds. He set it down in the yard and came around to face the turtle's gaping jaws. He adjusted the pliers and expertly clamped them onto the lower jaw and instructed Yana. Now you hold onto them pliers tight and pull hard. If you let go, it'll hurt him worse. As he grabbed hold of the pliers and looked into the wide-open, expressionless eyes of this massive, silent reptile, Yana held her breath. Roy unsheathed his butcher knife, grabbed the turtle by the tail, and started to pull. Yana knew she had to muster a great deal of both psychic and physical strength to be able to hold on to the turtle's jaws with those pliers and literally pull that great beast's head out of its shell. Roy, can you stop just a minute? I think I want to say a prayer. She was slightly embarrassed that Roy might think her somewhat strange, but he bowed his head respectfully. 
She looked into that turtle's eyes through her own watery eyes and said, Bless you, little one. May your flesh, your life, and your spirit give strength, life, and healing to Roy. Okay, Roy, I guess I'm ready, she said and held on to those pliers with all her might, and they both pulled until the neck was extended. Roy reached around with his sharp knife and expertly severed the neck right behind the head. Roy flipped the turtle onto its back. The turtle's jaws were still clamped on the pliers Yana held in her hand. Roy removed the disembodied head from the pliers, the jaw still gaping. He placed a stick in the mouth and the jaw snapped onto the stick and held tightly. He handed Yana the stick with the head attached and told her to go bury it somewhere where the dog wouldn't dig it up. The head was too dangerous to leave lying around because it could still bite. She buried it with a large rock on top. When she got back, Roy was trying to skin the turtle. The headless beast was still kicking and thrashing about, responding to every prick of Roy's knife. They worked on that turtle, cutting around the upper shell, separating it from the bottom. They used pliers and a great deal of tugging to remove the skin. As they struggled, Yana was astonished at how much strength and stamina it took to prepare this meat. She was concerned about Roy. She felt like she had pulled him out of his sickbed, and here he was wrestling with a huge, incredibly tough reptile. She brought him over to the shade and set up a table and a chair. Roy appreciated these comforts, but he did not seem to be suffering. It seemed that the more he worked on this turtle, the better he felt. This experience was strengthening him in some very deep way. As he worked, he talked and talked. He told Yana about how he used to catch turtles when he was a boy. He told her about the seven kinds of meat in the turtle. He showed her the beef in the back of the shell, the fatty pork around the hind legs, the squirrel and the rabbit meat in the front legs, as well as the chicken, duck, and groundhog meat. There are four kinds of meat in the neck, he explained. He removed the heart and placed it in her hand, and they watched it continue to beat and marveled at the strength of such an animal. He removed the lungs and the liver and carefully set them aside. Yana scurried about, as busy and attentive as a surgical nurse, sharpening his knife, fetching dishpans and pots, as well as pulling and cutting, as he liberated one chunk of flesh from another. She carefully listened to all of Roy's instructions on how to deal with the various internal organs. She even went so far as to clean out all the intestines, turtle chitlins. She also saved his goober. That was Roy's daddy's favorite part. If this turtle was to be Roy's medicine, she wanted to prepare all of the usable parts and make sure it was treated with respect. She froze the liver and the other organs, and later she ran them through a meat grinder and cooked it all up with cornmeal, sage, pepper, and other spices to make turkle liver mush, as it was the tradition with home butchered hogs. This liver mush is then pan-fried like sausage patties. It took them at least two hours of solid work to get that turtle dressed out. Roy stuck with it the whole time. Yana parboiled some of the turtle meat and sent him home with it so Edith could make it into soup. He ate some every day for more than a week. Roy insisted that Yana keep some of it, so she saved it for me when I came home. Roy and Edith came over and joined us one evening for turtle soup. Roy took me aside and said, one thing I never will forget is that little Yana praying over that mud turkle before we killed it. It reminded me of my mama. Roy never did go back into the hospital after that. For the rest of his days, he was usually seen cruising the neighborhood, visiting neighbors, lending a hand where he could. On one occasion, he helped pull a car out of a ditch. 
On another occasion, he spotted a neighbor's house on fire. After calling the fire department, he then crawled into the burning building alone to be sure that there was no one in the beds. I'm still amazed when I think of how he lived his last days. They were filled with deeds of helpfulness, neighborliness, and even quiet heroism. The shell of that turtle still sits on our bookshelf, and I marvel at how the strength and spirit of its original owner was shared. For us, it is a memorial to a special man and a special beast, as well as a symbol of the interconnectedness of all life. Wow. I got goosebumps. What a phenomenal tale. What an incredible story. And I'm running out of steam. I'm losing my voice. The snow is coming down. And I highly suggest you get this book, Wild Woods Wisdom, Encounters with the Natural World by Doug Elliott. Another book I'm really interested of his is called Woods Lore, Stories, Lore, and Truth Stranger Than Fiction About the Natural World. I'm hoping to get that soon. And Victoria from Cedar Hill Homestead had suggested getting Wild Roots, a forager's guide to the wild edible and medicinal roots, tubers, corms, and rhizomes. All of those by Doug Elliott, available on his site. And I've put links for all of these books in the show notes. I hope this has been interesting. I hope this has been fun. Thank you so much. Happy holidays. And we'll find a a new and thought-provoking guest for the next episode.